Please join me in the prayer for illumination taken from Psalm 131. In humility, we place ourselves under the ministry of your word, O God. We quiet our hearts. Speak your words to our souls. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Today's first scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 to 32. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded... You make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound to that oath. You blind fools! Which is greater, the gold or the temple? that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind man, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, Anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides! You strain out a net, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. 
blind Pharisee first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the laws and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and you decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So, you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. This is the word of the Lord. Our Old Testament second reading is from Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Jonah 4, 1 through 11, it's printed for us in our bulletin. Let me invite you to follow along. Now, um, Jonah has been called to Nineveh. He didn't go. He got shipwrecked on his way, fleeing from the Lord, swallowed by a great fish, prayed a prayer of repentance. The Lord has the whale spit him up. He then goes to Nineveh, preaches to them. They repent of their sins, and this leaves Jonah confused and, as we'll see, pretty angry. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is why I tried to forestall. This is, that is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Verse 4, but the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. Verse 7, But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry 
I wish I were dead. Verse 10. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know if you realized this, but Friday was an important anniversary. Friday was the 50th anniversary of Exploding Whale Day. Did you know this? That's right, Exploding Whale Day. 50 years ago, a massive sperm whale carcass washed up on the shores of Oregon, on the west coast in the U.S., And this kind of thing had happened before, but nobody, at least in Oregon, could remember what they did about the dead beached whale. Like, you have to get it off the beach, but how do you do it is the question, right? No one could remember. So the highway department, who had been put in charge of this for some reason, um, they came to the obvious conclusion. They decided to use explosives and to blow the whale carcass to bits. And the genius idea here was that they would then allow all the seagulls and the crabs and things to feed on the little bits that remained. Piece of cake, right? It worked kind of, kind of, because as the TV reporter put it, the blast blasted blubber beyond all believable bounds. A chunk of blubber crushed a car that was parked several hundred meters away. All the people that had gathered around to see this explosion, a bizarre event, found themselves being rained on by little bits of whale. And a whole lot of whale was still stuck on the beach even after this. And then you can imagine, of course, the smell, which was bad enough, apparently, to drive all the seagulls away. Seagulls, spectators, and reporters all went away, and then the poor highway department, whose genius idea this was, was left to do all the dirty work, cleaning the mess off of the beach and the dunes nearby. These final verses of Jonah are kind of like a blast site, right? Full of debris. Jonah's heart has exploded with anger. And the nastiness of Jonah's angry heart is just all over everything, and it leaves a pretty funky smell, actually. It would have been so much cleaner if the story had just ended before this scene. But now here we are, we're like the highway department, and we have to clean up the mess. And we wonder, when we read this last chapter, well, why had God picked Jonah to be his missionary, his ambassador in Nineveh, in the first place? Did God not know what he was getting when he picked Jonah, of all people? And at first it seems like, oh, this is going to end really well, right? At first Jonah's in bad shape, but chapters 1 and 2 are exactly the 
divine intensive therapy that Jonah's clunky heart needs to be sort of put back together, prepared for his mission. And the crazy experience that Jonah undergoes on the sea and in the belly of the fish, these things are going to make Jonah wholehearted so that he can represent God's heart to Nineveh adequately. But that's not how it turns out. And it makes us scratch our heads. Was, was God fooled into thinking that after this wild incident on the Mediterranean Sea, being tossed by the sea, thrown overboard, swallowed by the fish, spit up on the shore, was God tricked into thinking that Jonah had actually changed? That he was ready this time? The end of this story, my old pastor Sinclair Ferguson says, is an enigma. Why? Because Jonah himself is an enigma, a riddle, a mystery. But friends, Jonah is not alone in being an enigma. St. Augustine, actually, whose birthday also was Friday, Whale Day and St. Augustine's birthday falls on the same day. You heard it here. In, in Augustine's famous confessions, he says this troubling line. He says, I have become a mystery, a great riddle to myself. Cognitive neuroscientists will tell us that perhaps only 5% of our brain's work, the decisions and emotions and reactions and behavior that we process in our brains is done consciously. And so that means that we are unaware of 95% of what we're thinking and feeling and doing at any given moment. The point is, we don't really know ourselves very well at all. We are riddles. The book of Jonah is a riddle because Jonah is a riddle because Jonah is a human and the human heart is a riddle. And especially in our state of brokenness, The human heart is not just a mystery, nothing wrong with mystery, but apart from God's grace, the human heart is a really pathetic and tragic riddle and mystery. Jonah's got the kind of anger going on in his heart that only matches the raging sea that he confronts in chapter one. Homer, the great Greek epic poet, he asked in one of his tragedies, What manner of speech has escaped the barrier of your teeth? And it turns out Homer was roughly a contemporary with the prophet Jonah. And I imagine that if Homer, the Greek poet, had been there in Nineveh, as Jonah is pouting outside of the city there, his heart exploding with this angry speech in God's face, that Homer would have probably interrupted and said, "Uh, What manner of speech has escaped the barrier of your teeth? Jonah. And the Lord Jesus himself, of course, says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The mission is over. Jonah, even against his will, has somehow succeeded in being the ambassador of God's grace to Nineveh. But now we're left alone with God and with Jonah's heart. And it's a little bit of an ugly scene. To remind you why Jonah's got this anger in his heart, let's imagine for a moment before this 
whole saga begins. Let's imagine that Jonah had been invited to the divine council to help make a plan for what to do about this wicked city, Nineveh. How God is going to deal with their wickedness. Well, when Jonah gets the microphone and has a chance to give counsel, his first choice is don't send a prophet, whatever you do, to Nineveh. Just rain down hellfire and brimstone on this awful city. A compromise plan is suggested. Well, if we must send a prophet, Jonah says, let's send a prophet who can serve as kind of a prosecuting lawyer, right? Indicting Nineveh for their wickedness. In other words, bring Nineveh to trial. Present the evidence. Convict them. And then hand them over to serve their death sentence. Let's make it official. Someone else pipes up in the divine council and says, well, what if we send a prophet in order to give Nineveh just one last chance to repent? And Jonah's eyes and his mouth bulge open with disgust. If you send a prophet, do not, Lord, give them a chance to repent. That's not what a sovereign king would do with a city like Nineveh. But ultimately, the Lord is persuaded in his wisdom to do exactly this. And he sends, ironically, Jonah to be the voice of warning, calling Nineveh to repentance, ultimately showing them grace through Jonah's words. The sovereign Lord, he sends junk-hearted Jonah, but he sends him to reveal his heart of grace to Nineveh. It was actually about three years ago this month that I submitted my application to be your senior pastor. And when I did so, I thought, I just don't know if I have the qualifications that they're looking for. I mean, let's give it a try and see what happens. They can say no, but I'm not going to say no for them, was kind of my attitude. It's up to you all, not to me. Let me ask you this. If on my cover letter in my application, I had written uh, that I didn't care for, uh, for people too much, that I especially disliked non-Americans, that I thought that cities especially were just cesspools of immorality, that I considered Europe particularly just a fundamentally immoral, secular, and lost beyond redemption kind of place, that I was just really hoping for a position of prestige and power. Do you think that uh, Peter Chen and the pastoral selection team would have said, look, before we just put... Steger's whole application in the shredder, maybe we should just listen to a couple of his sermons, just to see, you know? No, of course not. But as we've been saying, even though the book reveals God's love for the lost Ninevites, it is more focused on God's love for lost Jonah. Jonah is the real mission. And even though the Lord calls for a total transformation of Assyrian society, this book is focused on the transformation of Jonah's life and his heart. A transformation that's going to require as much repentance, a miracle of a repentance, equal to the Ninevite repentance itself. And this is a transformation that only God's love could hope to accomplish. He's going to send this unqualified prophet so that he can get to work on the heart of this unqualified prophet. 
And off he goes, this mess of a man, to the city, trying to represent the warm-hearted compassion of God for these 120,000 precious in his sight people that matter to him deeply. And the more that we get to know Jonah, the dumber we think that this idea is. You hired this guy? Did you read his cover letter? And then after the surprising success of Jonah's mission, he leaves town and sets up outside the city. And then the Lord, in chapter 4, verse 5, goes outside of the city. He finds Jonah sitting at a little booth that Jonah had built for himself, a sort of shack to protect himself. This booth has some resonance with God's relationship with Israel that I'd invite you to explore on your own. Significant. But the Lord finds him in that booth, and Jonah is just waiting to see what would happen to Nineveh. At this point, Jonah is 95% sure that God is going to hear their repentance. He's going to turn away from the destruction that he had warned about. But he's come all this way. He's all the way in Nineveh in Assyria. And he's going to check and see if maybe, maybe after all, he'll get to see them destroyed. Apparently, when Whale Day happened in Oregon 50 years ago, apparently there was an army explosives expert on hand that tried to tell the highway department that they were using way too many explosives, that they needed to back it off just a little bit. And apparently the highway department just said, no, we know what we're doing. We're going to use as many explosives as we can get our hands on. Kept piling the TNT up next to the whale carcass. You can imagine the explosive expert just shaking his head, standing several hundred meters further back from the rest of the ignorant crowd because he knows what's about to happen. But he's standing there and he's thinking, there's a chance, I suppose, that this could work, so I better stick around and watch. Maybe these idiots will get it right after all. And this story now in chapter 4 is Jonah camped out like that. And he's looking to see if maybe God isn't such an idiot after all. Maybe God will just nuke them like he ought to. And the Lord finds Jonah there, bitter, watching. And this could have, when you think about it, this could have been an even more powerfully ironic and pyrotechnic book if the Lord had done what? If the Lord had taken the judgment that Jonah wanted on Nineveh and turned it against Jonah and exploded that pathetic little shack of his with Jonah in it, what a way to end the book. What a warning that would have been to all of us. But one scholar says that what God does instead is he comes to Jonah as the divine therapist, as the wonderful counselor. And instead of pointing the finger at him, attacking his self-righteous attitude directly, the Lord is both patient and wise with Jonah. The counseling session begins with the Lord giving Jonah some extra shade in the form of this plant that grows up. He, he, verse 6, appoints a vine to grow on this booth of Jonah's. And Jonah is exceedingly happy about this plant. Then the Lord appoints Verse 7, a worm to chew up that vine. He appoints a hot wind blowing off of the mountains in Iran. 
and the blazing sun to beat down on Jonah. And Jonah goes from exceedingly happy to now he's suicidal once again. And after Jonah experiences this roller coaster of emotions, which is really ridiculous, it's like the Lord just taps him on the shoulder and says, verse 10, Jonah, did you make this vine and cause it to grow? Jonah, it's a vine. It's a plant. You want to die because this plant has withered away? Jonah, think about this. You didn't make this vine. I made the entire world. And the great city of Nineveh is full of people that are made in my image, that are the pinnacle of my creativity and power. And it's full of cattle, too, my favorite line in the whole story, the very last verse of our story. And I happen to also like cattle. Do you think, Jonah, that if you're so concerned about a plant, shows up and then withers away in one day, how much more do you think I am concerned with my precious image bearers in the city of Nineveh? And then the book just ends right there. What did Jonah say? What did he do? What's the response? What are we supposed to do as readers? Okay, we've got don't be like Jonah, that part of it, right? But what else? What a strange book. There's no resolution. What happens? Some people have pointed out, well, the very fact that we have this story in our Bibles means that Jonah must have come to his senses, told his story to somebody who wrote it down or wrote it down himself. So maybe that's part of it. But as readers, we're stuck, aren't we? What happened to Jonah? Uh, Ingrid had to read this difficult passage from Matthew's gospel, and she had to point the finger at all of us and say, Woe to you, hypocrites, teachers of the law, Pharisees. Of course, I'm the only one with a clerical robe on, so um, maybe I was the target of all of her uh, vindictiveness there. It's a tough passage to read. But Zach Eswine, he points out that if you plot the timeline of Jesus' ministry, his three years, it seems pretty likely that Jesus doesn't raise his voice and point the finger and use the voice of the angry prophet, woe to you, until perhaps two years into his three-year ministry. Which means that for the first two years of his ministry... What is he doing? He's pointing at flowers and saying, consider the lilies. He's telling parables and stories. He's trying with word pictures that are very similar to this vine and then the worm and then the scorching sun to show our dumb hearts that he is Lord and that he's full of grace and that we need to get off of our high horses and put away our religious snobbery and our Self-righteous bitterness. Did Jonah get it? I think the reason that this question is left hanging at the end of this book for us is because it's supposed to come to our hearts, right? What are we, the 21st century Jonahs, going to do? The people who 
take up the prophetic role to bear God's name in the world, what will we do? Will we turn from our bitterness and our anger and will we embrace the kindness of God? Or will we keep pointing the finger at everybody else except ourselves? Friends, as I've said before, in the end, the Lord does not need us for his mission to the world. But he wants us and he invites us into it. And he wants us so bad for his mission to the world. So concerned is he with all of the people made in his image and the rest of creation. He wants us so bad that he sent Jesus as his missionary first to us. To call out our ugly hearts and our bitter deeds. To do so patiently, but also to do so firmly. And to transform our hearts as we encounter his heart poured out for us in his self-giving life and death. Jonah knows that these Ninevites are wicked. But he doesn't realize that they don't know their right hand from their left hand. But our Savior knows how much of a riddle we are to ourselves, how confused we are. And so even while people were crying, crucify him, and then doing it, Jesus was saying, much like these last words of the book of Jonah, he was saying, forgive them, Father, for they do not have a clue what they are doing. So what will your response be? What will my response be when the Lord Jesus finds your, finds my wreck of a self-righteous heart and gently calls you, calls me to leave it behind and to get a soft heart like his own. Well, then he can use us and use us mightily. The mission of God is to the world, but it's through people like you and me. And he can use us when we're hard-hearted, but wouldn't it be a delight to be used by the Lord after he has made our hearts soft. Father, we don't know what we're doing half of the time. Thank you for being pleased to reveal Jesus to us, which shows us our ignorance, but also makes us wise unto salvation. We pray that you would stir up our hearts, not only to love you more, but to love our neighbors as ourselves, and that you would stir up our church, both to sing your praise with all of our tongues together, but also to declare your grace to the world around us. And may it please Jesus to break our hearts and put them back together again, and then to use our mended hearts as an agent of healing among the nations. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.